This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Carl Peterson, and you're listening to the Eye Test for Two. month hour as you know we've been talking about the hall of fame's class of 2022 and listening to todd rundgren i take a page out of his book by saying anything worth doing is worth overdoing so we're going to talk about it again this week and hour as you know for good reason there was some news about the class of 2022 this week namely that for the first time since 2006 the hall is going to move the induction ceremony which is august 6th to midday noon to be exact in eastern time and schedule the concert for legends that evening what do you think about it clark i think this is another example of one of many that jim porter is not wedded necessarily to tradition open to uh semi-new ideas i think it makes sense in a lot of ways clark because for the fans if you have it at night they, they're exhausted they get there in the morning they're shopping, they're getting autographs, they're going through the museum. They're beat now. And, and I think it helps the players plan their parties for Saturday evening after the induction, which I think also makes sense. Clark, my drawback, you're always a little bit of a slave to the weather in Canton. It could be muggy, it could be hot. I know you're going this year, Clark. I uh, am. As a, as a salute to Bryant Young. So I, uh, I, I, uh, I doff my cap to you on that regard. Salute to Bryant Young and to Art McNally. But uh, just to be clear, this is a one-year experiment. They're going to see how it goes. But you mentioned the fans being exhausted. The gold jackets aren't young men. A lot of those guys are exhausted by the evening, too. So I think they're doing it from both, uh, from both aspects. And I, I hope it works out. But it's worth a try. And as Jim Porter has explained to us, he's willing to try anything. You know, and Clark, let's be honest, by 6 o'clock, it hadn't cooled off that much in Canton, Ohio. It was, <laughs> right. it, it was still hot and mucky. It, it that's, was. That's right. Well, we have someone with us today who will be directly involved, and that's class of 2022 inductee Dick Vermeil. Now, Dick is one of only two NFL head coaches to guide two different teams, the Super Bowls. That would be the Philadelphia Eagles and the St. Louis Rams. And the only coach in NFL history to go 19 years between Super Bowls, mostly, of course, because he went into broadcasting for the next 15 years after he left the Eagles. Dick, first of all, congratulations on reaching Canton. And second, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Nice to enjoy you. And I appreciate the opportunity to say a lot of say thank you to a lot of people that might be listening. You know, I'm I'm very appreciative and very grateful for this opportunity to go into this class with 2022 Hall of Fame class. Dick, let me ask you first question right out of the box. Several years ago, we were talking to Brett Favre, and I think it was 2016 when he got into Football of Fame. We asked him how meaningful it was to get to Canton, and he said, not much, really. I mean, 
just the fact that I played in the NFL, that's the greatest accomplishment I could have. And everything else is sort of icing on the cake. The fact that I was able to play in the NFL is all that, that I could ask for, nothing more. And so he said the, 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 the Hall of Fame sort of something in addition, but not quite as great as the fact that I had a career in the league. I want to ask you how meaningful it is for you to reach the Hall and has it changed your life in any way in the past month? Well, you know, extremely meaningful to me, more so than the way that Brett Favre described it to him, you know, uh, coming up from high school coaching as an assistant coach, then a head coach in high school, assistant coach in junior college, then a head coach in junior college, assistant coach in college, then a head coach in college, assistant coach in the NFL, then a head coach in the NFL. It makes the arrival into the Hall of Fame uh, almost overwhelming you know never were my expectations uh at that level you know and coming up like i did ira and and clark i i always looked at these guys coaching these nfl teams as something very special and i had a hard time even when i was coaching putting myself at their same level because i can remember sitting in the high school on on sunday watching nfl teams play and watching coaches and studying what they're doing and and, and never visualizing that I'm going to end up there someday. And now to take that whole vision and end up being with 27 other guys in the Hall of Fame, three which I've worked with in four and 14 I've coached against. It's a overwhelming experience, believe me. Yeah, well, you heard me read a fraction of your accomplishments. You have numerous accomplishments in college football and in the pros. Yet when you were nominated for this, for the Pro Football of Fame. Remember you saying you weren't sure you belonged. Why? Well, because I, I, I never really felt that I was of that level because I held those coaches, you know, the Don Shulas, the Bill Parcells, the Bud Grants, the Marv Levy's, these guys, such high level of esteem. And uh, I was in, I can remember being nervous, shaking hands with Tom Landry the first time I coached against him, you know, <laughs> and uh, I see that's not Cappuccino High School across the field there. It's uh, that's the Dallas Cowboys. What am I doing here? And I, I was always, and still am in awe of those kind of men, you know, to me, they're, they're the, they're the generals of the NFL, you know, and I just never really put myself in that category. And I've sort of, I'm not trying to be over humble or anything. That's just the kind of feeling that I have. And it's the only way I know how to express it. Dick, congratulations on your gold jacket, my man. Uh, Thank you. Dick, I, I want to bring you back to a young Dick Vermeil. A young okay. Dick Vermeil. Yeah. A long time Dick, ago. Nine, <laughs> 1969. 69. You're, you're a special teams coach for George Allen on, Dick, a heck of a Rams team. A oh, yeah, good team. team. Great team, yeah. They started 11-0, and 0, Dick. They mm -hmm. lost a tough playoff game in Minnesota. I remember it. Yeah. I was there. Had a Cold big as hell. Yeah. On Gabriel. Uh, yeah. Clark, two things. One, what was it like coaching uh, under George Allen? And there's a guy, Clark, on that team who's maybe towards the end of his career. His name comes up a lot, Clark, for the hole, but he doesn't get any traction, and that's Maxie Bourne. Yeah. Um, Dick, talk a little bit about George Allen and, and Maxie Bond. Well, first off, George Allen, uh, you know, is an innovator. You know, I, I think I was on the football field in a preseason game the first time anyone ran a six-pack on defense. 
I think he was the guy that initiated the five pack, you know, the nickel and the dime defenses. And I was on the field with him. I, and obviously the first guy to decide they need a special teams coach. And I'm fortunate enough to get the job. And, you know, and if you look at his record, he did it George Allen's way, similar to how the world champion Ram did it this year. He gave up draft choices to get seasoned players. Maxi Bond fit in perfectly. Very, very bright guy. Understood the game and playing safety as if he were coaching the secondary himself and maybe even coordinating the defense. And I can remember being very nervous going into my very first special teams meetings as the first special teams coach in football. And there's Jack Pardee and Maxi Bond and Richie Pettibon sitting in the front row of my special teams meeting. And here I am, 32, 33 years old. I, those guys are older than I am. <laughs> I was very nervous, but I, I had such great respect and admiration for those guys. And, and when Maxie went on to prove what he was, he'd already established a reputation as a brilliant playing linebacker. The year I was with him in 69, he was not a healthy man. He was very ill. And he could play anyway. But in those days, you know, if you could still walk, you still played. And he, he struggled. He missed a number of games. But no one ever doubted his contribution to the league and, and, and to our Ram teams. Dick, um, I want to ask you about a guy in Kansas City. The guy never gets mentioned. He's lost in NFL history, Dick. But you coached him, and you know how great this guy was. And that's Priest Holmes. Dick, he's not going to get a gold jacket. He, he, he didn't have that long a career. But, Dick, he, he was fantastic for Dick Vermeil, And then he got hurt in 04. And, and, Dick, when he got hurt in the middle of the season, he, he had 14 touchdowns that season. Yeah. Um, had he not gotten hurt, Dick, would we be talking about Priest Holmes a lot more than we do? I believe so. You know, I'm a numbers guy. You know, I, I, I'm a head of analytics. I started that stuff a long time ago. I don't take it as serious as they do now, because if I'm making those kind of decisions, I'm sometimes making the uh, decision whether I win or lose the ball game like some of these guys do now. But uh, Pri uh, Priest Holmes, you know, 26 touchdowns one year, I think, and, uh, and, and broke the NFL record at that time. If he were in Dallas, Chicago, or New York, he'd already be in the Hall of Fame, I think, because that was such an outstanding thing that he did. And, and he went on, if you look at his numbers, you'll see that he has performed as well or better some, at running backs that are already in the NFL Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, all those guys that are in there deserve it. But I, I think eventually you're going to find Priest Holmes get in because there are other people like you that believe he is of that caliber. You know, he wasn't blazingly fast, but he was an extremely intelligent runner and he understood blocking schemes and he would help a great offensive line that includes three Hall of Famers. Okay, Willie Rofe, Will Shields and Tony Gonzalez and Brian Waters is a Hall of Fame performing guy and, and Crazy Wegman played in the Pro Bowl, you know, so but he understood how to set up combination blocks and stay with them long enough so you could really knock people off the line of scrimmage and very intelligent runner, very outstanding inside the red zone, goal line, go to go type runner, proved it with his numbers, coached by Al Saunders uh, and uh, uh, Mike Solari, offensive line coach, coming up with uh, great schemes in, in the running game. Uh, but I think he would have been, well, before he came to the Chiefs, he had, what, 1,200 yards as a free agent playing for the Ravens. 
So what a know, free what a free agent signing that was, Dick. Oh yeah, Carl Peterson did a great job in signing him, and uh, I know that uh, we have great admiration for him. And it, to me, he is a Hall of Fame caliber running back. Yeah, I'd like to see him discussed, Howard, wouldn't you? Yes, absolutely. We're speaking with Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil on the I test for two, and Dick's joining us today from his home in Key West, Florida. Wish I were there. I we're getting snow tomorrow. Uh, Dick, um, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, just following up on what Ira said, you know, you, you were coaching the special teams with George Allen in 1969, and you certainly got your start in the NFL there. So did Marv Levy start as special teams coach. Both of you guys are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. John Harbaugh, still coaching. He was a special teams coach for years in Philadelphia. Why aren't more special teams coaches considered for head coaching jobs? Well, I don't think they're looked upon uh, by the media and the, the evaluating ownerships as that big a contributor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only 28 snaps a game. It isn't 65 snaps of offense or 65 snaps of defense. It, it, it isn't a goal to go call. And he says, so it's never been moved to the prestigious position, the offensive or defensive coordinator is. But the special teams coach, and you mentioned Marv Levy, he took my job when I left, when I went to UCLA <laughs> as the offensive coordinator. I love that man. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, the special teams are only critically important until they break down. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And George Allen really proved uh, how innovative he was and how seriously he considered. I can remember uh, guys telling me, and I, I just talked to Pat Kern about a week ago, who was on the special. He may not have made the league if there hadn't been a special teams coach in the cut meetings to discuss that position as thoroughly as a special teams coach, rather than spreading it over the, all the assistant coaches. But, uh, you know, George Allen gave it time to really be prepared to play well on Sunday. And I'm very proud to say that year, our special teams made a huge difference. I I mean, we made a contribution beyond what they were be, being made by. Uh, uh, and like I say, the only time a special teams coach really gets notoriety is when they fire him because he got a punt block. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, that's right. And I, I forgot to mention Bill Belichick also had special teams background. But oh, yeah. um, I, I mentioned earlier when I was introducing you that you went into broadcasting. I was just sort of wondering what or who, or who convinced you to come out of retirement in 1997 and how close were you to rejoining the Eagles in 1994 after Rich Kotite was fired? Well, you know, I'm not bragging when I say this, but 13 of the 14 years I was out of coaching, someone approached me and asked me if I was interested. The finest job I've ever been offered in my life was offered to me on the phone at Christmas time when I was out seeing my dad was very sick with pancreatic cancer there in the Napa Valley. Hugh Culverhouse called me and he said, you know, Dick, I understand that you're going back and coaching Atlanta Falcons. And I said, no, I didn't say that. All I said was, you give me a wink to think about it and keep it quiet. Well, it didn't, wasn't kept quiet. He found out about it. And he was very close to Leonard Toast, the owner. And he said, see, I remember this. And I'm not bragging when I say this, but I'm just telling you the truth. He says, coach, he said, I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of losing. He says, I've got more money than I can spend in many lifetimes. And I want to win. And he says, you can write your own contract. 
in those days, you know, they weren't paying coaches like they paid them now, you know, and he says, you can write your own contract. And I say, you know, let me think about it, but I don't think so. I just don't feel ready yet. I sat down after the phone call. My dad was sitting in the chair, very unhealthy man. And I said, dad, that was Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just offered me a job. I could write my own contract. My dad, very analytical in his own way, says, Dick, do you need the aggravation? I said, no, I don't. He said, then don't take the job. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And I didn't. But the Rams had offered me the job a few times. Okay. It, because I was a young assistant for the Rosenblums when he yeah. took over the team with Tommy Prothrow. And Carol Rosenblum one time told me I would be his head coach if I were a little older and more mature and more experienced when he was letting people go. So, and I always held that as a, a vote of confidence. And, uh, and John Shaw had talked to me before. And then when he talked to me this time, I said, you know, if I, if I don't go now, it'll be too late. Yeah, I'll never go. So I went in and talked with him. You know, I never had an agent, never, never had a football agent. Went in and talked. We talked for a few hours. I said, uh, call me tomorrow morning. So I flew home back to Philadelphia. He called me the next morning. And I, I said, uh, John, I'll take the job. Thank wow. you. And uh, that was it. I, I didn't have a contract. I didn't know how much money it was going to be or anything. And, you know, and the Rams treated me fair. And fortunately, we did a good job for them. But what convinced you to take the job then when you hadn't before? Well, it's a sincere interest in the Rams. And I, you know, I'd been as a Ram assistant for, you know, uh, four years. Yeah. I felt good about the name Rams, you know, and uh, John Becker was working there that I had worked at UCLA. And I think he's the instigator of keeping the interest in the, in the eyes and ears of, of the Ram organization. And I knew they were sincere and I, I was afraid this would be the last offer. If I didn't take it, I'd never get another one. And it was no backing out then. I said, all right, let's go. The Eagle job. Uh, I screwed that up more myself. You know, uh, Jeffrey offered me the job. I was in New York, met with him. And after a few hours, I was concerned that I wasn't prepared to take a job after being out at that time, 12 years for an owner that was just brand new in the league. Yeah. And the people sitting with me in the evaluation process, in the interview, none of them had been in the NFL either. And, you know, and they talked about talking to Jimmy Johnson and talking to Bill Walsh and these guys. And now they're talking to Dick Vermeil had been out of for, for 12 years. I said, this is not for me. And then we reopened the conversation because Jeffrey flew out to the East West game and who's on the field there at the East West game, Bill Walsh at Stanford right. and Bill's my closest friend and one of the guys that really over the years, probably the number one guy that coached me to go back into coaching. And they, we rekindled a, a conversation that went through the week. And then at the end of the week, Jeffrey decided to go in a different direction. Hey, they, he went in the right direction. The next year they were in the playoffs with me coaching them. They wouldn't have big, I, I was too far behind at that time. I needed, I, I needed uh, real support to catch up. Dick, uh, what, what year did, uh, what year did you have a conversation with Culverhouse? I would say that was like uh, nine. Uh, oh, I tell you, the, the guy that took the job, former Alabama head coach. And, oh, yeah. Uh, Ray Perkins. Yeah, you you could have spared me Ray Perkins over there. Ray, <laughs> it was Ray. Ray. I'm pretty sure it was here, Ray. I could have spared you instead of Perkins. Job. Yeah, it was Ray. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dick, a couple of things uh, about the modern game that I want to get your thoughts on because you've got such great perspective. Um, 
One, Dick, a lot of chatter about the overtime rules, especially in the postseason. Some people say leave it alone, just play some defense. Other people think it's too much of an advantage of a coin flip. And two, Dick, some of your thoughts about um, some of these more aggressive play callers. I'm going for it on fourth down from my own 30, you know, late in the first quarter. I want the ball. I'm not punting. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on the aggressive play calling and the overtime rules, Dick? Well, I, I'd like to see the team get an opportunity to score after the opponent scores uh, the opening drive in some way. I'd like to see the other team get the opponent, uh, get the opportunity to compete and go ahead and score. Just like this year, I would have liked to see Buffalo get an opportunity. That's how I feel about it. I've always felt that way about it. I'm sure there's a lot of things involved in that kind of uh, process and decision-making that I haven't thought about. But from a coaching standpoint, if I were on the sideline and they scored and I didn't get an opportunity to go back and score and tie it up or something, I'd be very disappointed. So I say that. In in regard to uh, uh, the game as it is today and in the gambling, uh, sometimes it just doesn't make good sense to me. You know, if it was a real great idea, Don Shula would have been doing it years ago. <laughs> you know, Vince Lombardi would have been doing it years ago. But, you know, the uh, it, it's not sure thing taking. It's gambling. And I, I think it, the, these jobs are too insecure. The owners don't lose their job. The the analysts don't lose their jobs when they go for it on fourth down in the opening drive of a Super Bowl. Don't don't make it. Or you're inside the 20 yard like three or four times and don't kick a field goal. They end up losing by three. You know, uh, those analytic guys, they don't get fired. But football coaches do. And I, I still believe I can remember kicking a field goal from the one yard line. Okay, that's what a chicken I was in those days. But that's how that you know. That's how you know the Tom Landrys and those kind of guys. Uh, uh, yes, the game is a little more sophisticated today in many ways, uh, but you know it's true gambling. It's that's that's you're taking a chance, and I th the analytics say the analytics don't measure your opponent week by week. It's numbers all. In my opinion, maybe I don't know enough about it. But you might have a better chance of making a, a fourth down conversion against a specific defense than the one you're playing this Sunday. May, they may have an unbelievable record on defensive fourth downs or just have a dominating down four or have, you know, just be more successful or down in the red zone, these different things. So that doesn't say you shouldn't gamble from time to time. But the first principle I learned from Tommy Prothrow running his offense, he says, first off, when we are a better team, make sure you don't screw it up allow our team to win the football game because we are a better team going in. Okay. Don't do that. And when we're moving the ball real well, don't gamble. Don't take a chance. We're going into the red zone. Don't run the reverses. Nest. Do what we've done to get down there. These kind of concepts were implanted in my mind as I was introduced to into high pressure play calling. And uh, I think they uh, made sense to me. Uh, I think I would probably go through for fourth down more than I ever did then. Uh, the first Monday night game or first time I ever beat Dallas Cowboys, my team beat Dallas Cowboys, November of 1979, we went for a force down situation. And that went back to a concept. If you're struggling to score against a team that's equal to, or better than you, you've got to do something to get a big play when, when they're, they expect you to do something else, because when you match up one-on-one, -on -one, it's a stalemate or they're better than you. So do something out of the ordinary 
in the unusual situation to try to get the big play. We beat him on a fourth down play. Okay, now I'll show you how smart I am. Harold Carmichael catches the touchdown fourth down call. Okay, but the only reason he caught it was he was six foot eight. Not because <laughs> Victor Meal calls him fourth down. Play. <laughs> he went up between, covered him like a blanket, went up between two guys and took the ball away and we win the football game. So anyway. Dick, uh, I, I want to bring you back to the first game that you coached, uh, I believe, against Mr. Tom Brady. Dick, 2003, uh, mm-hmm. 2002 in mm-hmm. Foxborough. Yeah. Dick, Dick, you lose 41-38 in overtime. Right. Um, Priest Holmes gets 180 yards, but <laughs> Brady throws for 410 and four touchdowns. Dick, he was young in his career. He had already won a Super Bowl. Uh, by the time that game ended, Dick, did you know you were looking at uh, an all-time great? Yes, I did. I did, and I think a lot of people did too. Uh, you know, you don't become a Hall of Famer until you play a long time in these. Well, there's a lot of guys that are playing. In fact, they make the they make the quarterbacks. They make all of them now sit out five years before you can be considered. Uh, you know, in that first vote. But in that ball game, okay, I remember it like it was yesterday. We score. Okay, and I'm thinking if I go for two, don't make it. They're going to beat us. Uh, We don't. We kick off. They go score. If it were me today and thinking as I think now and learning from all these younger coaches, I'd have gone for two then. Thinking that if we lose the toss, he's going to Brady's going to get the ball. He's already thrown for a quarter of a century. You know, uh, they'll score and we won't get a chance. And, you know. When the end of that season, you know, Lamar Hunt was the finest, one of the finest men I've ever met in my life, regardless of football. He comes down and he sits at my desk and he says, you know, Dick, his coach, he says, you know, coach, I never second guess you or anything like that. But, you know, in that temp in the New England Patriot game, when we scored with seconds to go and we were down, he says, you know, if, uh, I think if we'd have gone for two, we'd have won that game. (laughs) And that's the amount of second guessing Lamar Hunt gave in five years. Okay. In five years, but he's right. And as I would think today, I would go for two. Yeah. I did it one. I did it later against the Oakland Raiders against the old and won the game in a little different scenario, but amount or two, you go to two, you win the game. If you don't let them score because they have a play left to run, you know. <laughs> We're speaking with Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil on the eye test for two, or maybe it's now the eye test for going for two. But <laughs> Dick, um, I don't think I'm actually going out on a limb here by saying that uh, Eagles fans and maybe Philadelphia sports fans in general have a long reputation of being, well, hostile. <laughs> I mean, I think about that 1968 game at Franklin Field with Santa Claus, where they booed yeah. him, and I think they threw a snowball. But um, how did you survive them, and not only survive them, endear yourself to them? And do you have any story that you can relate to us that involves the Philadelphia sports fans? Well, first off, you know I've coached in three cities. Okay, uh, I would say the Eagle fans are the most passionate combined with the most intense right okay. and uh, they're pretty much like the old family that raised their son 
they love him to death, but if he makes a mistake, they're all over his butt. You know, people raise their kids differently, but the Eagle fans sort of identify with the Eagles as part of their family. Mm-hmm. And, and they've had a rough week all week, maybe. And they come, you know, especially in that old vet and they come and they want to see you play well. They want to see you win. I remember Jim Murray telling me when he was recruiting me to take the job, if you make a first down, they'll get a standing ovation. He said, <laughs> you know, they're very intense. Kansas city is every bit as a passionate fan, not quite as intense. The difference I can't tell you how many times I've walked out of the Eagle Stadium and some guy gave me a blast in the ear. You feel like going up and getting after him, you know, <laughs> and you'd lose a game in Kansas City and they would it's sort of like Green Bay. They'd say, hey, tough game, coach. We'll get him next week. You know, and, and St. Louis was a blend. Uh, they are a baseball city, but I'll tell you, it took three years when we turned them into a football city right there. I mean, they, you couldn't get a seat. You couldn't buy any marketing space. Uh, And they're still a great baseball city, no question about that. And it's a shame that they don't have a football team. But uh, the Eagle fans, I remember we we went through a series of losing there, and they really started booing as we walked off the field. And uh, I know I made some kind of a remark, and it ended up. Remember on uh, it's sixty minutes. They used to have the guy would do a three minute documentary statement. On yeah. different controversial things. What was his name? Andy Con- Rooney. Andy, Andy Rooney. Rooney. He yeah. did a thing on the Eagles booing Vermeil and on the Eagle team after a loss. You know, he <laughs> sort of got after my butt a little bit because I'd shot off my mouth. So I learned to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> uh, well, you you are not going to have to keep your mouth shut at Canton this summer. You're going to speak and and thank the people who uh, surrounded you and helped you on your way up and who helped you Thanks succeed. You've got, I think, you know, it's like maybe eight to 10 minutes. Uh, that's what it was basically last year, Ira. I think there was one person who seated. They gave us, yeah. Yeah, but, they, but they, they don't really hold you to Someone went, didn't win at 11 minutes last year, but it's eight to 10 minutes. How are you going to be able to do that to thank all the people? And, and let's be honest, I mean, in terms of reputation, you've got a reputation for being an emotional guy and speaking from the heart. Right. How emotional is this going to be for you? Well, it'll be difficult. I've already made up my mind and thinking about it. Carol asked me a little while ago, how'd you sleep? I said, I didn't sleep well. Why? Because I woke up in the middle of the night and I started thinking about exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) No, it'd be be different if you only coached one team, but I coached three. You know, and if you started out acknowledging just the ownership relationship I had with three owners, and then you go to your coaching staff and your general manager. You know, I, I'm one of the only guys coached three teams, never got fired. I, I have good relationships with those people. Well, there goes the first 10 minutes. You know? right. and then, you, you, then you start talking about the coaching staffs. You had the Marion Campbells, the Fred Brunies, these kind of guys that Mike Martz's, uh, Al Saunders, Jim Hannafin, these kind of guys. You start talking about them, then the players. Carl Harrison, you mentioned Priest Holmes, you know, Kurt Warner, Trent Great, all these guys, Roman Gabriel, these kind of people. How do you justify and how do you really uh, say how grateful you are for the contribution that they made? My thought now is there's 27 guys as NFL head coaches that are in the Hall of Fame. I'm going in as number 28, and I don't think any one of them needed as much help to get in as I did and how you're going to explain it 
and say thank you, especially to those that have passed on. Jim Hennepin, yeah. Marion Campbell, and these guys. You know, yeah, Bud Carson. Yeah. Uh, how do you say it in just a few minutes? And it'll be tough to do. But I made up my mind. I'm not going to talk much about my family. I'll acknowledge my wife. They'll all be there. I don't dare acknowledge my parents because I'll burst right there. So, in fact, it, now it chokes me up to think about it. Dick, one more for me. Thanks so much for your time, Dick. Um, Dick, this goes to building a football team of, of which you you were an expert on and, and something I've been saying for a long time, Dick. You know, you can have the fancy quarterbacks, the wide receivers, the running backs, but Dick, in terms of offense, you, you got to have the horses up front. No and play. Dick Vermeil, especially in Kansas City, where they led the league in scoring three years in a row, I think, and, and we're number five the next year. Rofe, Shields, Waters, Wegman, and they never missed a game, Dick. They were extremely durable in Kansas City. So, Dick, uh, am I on the right side that if you got an offensive line like you had in KC, you can do whatever the heck you want on offense, Dick? Yes, you know, it's, it may be not quite that easy, but it, it starts there. The big people provide the opportunity for the skilled people to be as skilled as they have the ability to be, you know, and uh, Philadelphia, I was fortunate when I took that team over, you know, we didn't have any draft choices for three years, but they did have Stan Walters at left tackle and Jerry Sizemore at right tackle. And then, and Guy Morris at center. And those three guys in seven years in combined starts, they missed three games, but I tell you, we coached them differently than they do today. You know, the players union controls the practice schedules, the amount of times you wear pads, the number of double days, the hitting days and that kind of stuff. And our players at that time were better prepared for combat because football is more than a contact sport. Those offensive and defensive linemen are in combat every snap. They're banging heads, banging. And now the, the game is played a little bit more standing up, you know, but, uh, you know, those big guys, you know, those big guys make an unbelievable difference and they make us all look smarter. They really do. And, uh, you know, the thing is that we get into uh, now talking about the sack and people are making millions of dollars because they can sack sack, you know, uh, many times the guys that get the most sacks are playing in the weakest division that doesn't have a great offensive line to come against twice or four times during the season, or they accumulated four sacks in one game uh, against a backup offensive tackle. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. But uh, when you have those big guys that can nullify other great players, you know, you know, Willie Rolfe could nullify in a ball game, another all pro Hall of Fame pass rusher, you know, and Will Shields could do it, you know, uh, Willie Rofe could do it. Yeah, Stan Waters could do it most of the time. Jerry Sizemore could do it. When you have those guys that can eliminate the best player they have at preventing your quarterback from being as good as he can be, you got a real good chance to win. Dick, do you know who's going to present you at the Hall? Yes, Carl Peterson. Oh, he is. Okay. Um, Carl uh, was responsible. I, I, I kept Carl on the U Carl Peterson on my UCLA staff when I took it over in, in 1974. I brought him with me to Philadelphia and he ended up being assistant general manager and not coaching with him anymore. And then he went on for the stars. And he's the guy that talked me into coming back to take the chief's job. And it, uh, he'd offered it to me before and I wouldn't go. Uh, 
Uh, and I always tease him. I say, he's the only reason I need a financial advisor because we really didn't start getting paid real money like they get paid today until we got there, you know? So yes, he will, he will uh, present me. Uh, my wife, Carol, will, will put my yellow jacket on or gold okay. jacket on. Yeah. Good. Well, he's also a guy who was on this podcast last summer promoting yeah. Dick Vermeil oh, yeah. for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, um, you need those kind of people. It just It's not that the voters aren't capable to make their own decision, but they have so many people to evaluate. It's nice to have somebody present them some comparable information. Yeah. Right. And, and last question for you. I mean, I think some of our, maybe most of our listeners know that you're involved with winery, the Vermeil Vineyards out in uh, Calistoga. Yeah. Are you going to have a special edition wine this year? Yeah, we are going to. Uh, you know, we make very high-end quality wines, not a lot of it. This last year, now we're going to bottle about 1,750 cases. Normally, we're in the 2,300 to 2,500 cases, but the crop was down this year, percentage-wise, in, in the grapes. that We buy grapes by the rows. I'm involved with a vineyard that I, I grew up being involved in because my great-grandfather owned a part of it a long time ago. Oh, wow. And uh, then my grandfather, Emil, made our family wines. That's how I developed the interest. And uh, I just think uh, we're going to do something. Uh, we have contracts for a specific amount of, of a number of vines in the Freddie Annie Vineyard. Uh, we're right now uh, talking with a couple. They're very, very, very high in high-end vineyards to see if we can't get a ton and a half or two ton of a specific high quality Cabernet to make a special Hall of Fame bottle of wine. Yeah, and that's what I was wondering whether we're going to see that special edition in Canton in August. Yeah. Well, you won't see it in August, but you'll know about it in August. Oh, okay. You make it a little bit two to three years down the road before those Cabernets are even bottled. <laughs> we'll look forward to it. Dick Vermeil, thank you so much for the time. Been a real education, been a real pleasure. And congratulations on reaching the hall. And Ari and I will see you in August, on August Well, thank you for your vote of confidence and having me on. I appreciate it very much. Take care. Our pleasure, Dick. Thanks so much. That was Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil. And Ira, I, I agree with him on the analytics, and I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you know where I stand on analytics, and I, I am old school too, but I agree with him. There's got to be some kind of middle ground, right? I mean, it's not like you don't always go for the, the fourth down. You don't always not go for it. There's got to be kind of some middle ground. And to me, the, the Brandon Staley's of the world, I go, no, nah, no. Nah. I mean, come on. We've got to get away from that and get more towards maybe some old school, but somewhere in between. You know, Clark, the problem with the analytics, if you take it to a, you know, the nth degree, it, it doesn't, it doesn't include the opponent necessarily, or the That's way right. the game, or the way the game is proceeding. Yeah, you know, and, and I thought I he made a good point. Back. Yeah, he made yeah. a good point. You know, about you, you don't screw it up if you're playing a team that's not your equal. You think going into it, you know, don't, don't screw it up. Um, wait a minute. Uh, speaking of screwing up, weren't you somewhere where you weren't supposed to be, yet, Mr. Jeff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah no years ago uh i was at the nfl scouting combine listen we just completed the scouting combine in indianapolis right well it's a big deal there are hundreds i think actually there are more than a thousand people there now and you can see it on the nfl network and watch the workouts and they charge people to go in but i went there when i was covering the 49ers in the mid to late 1990s and i'll be honest with you ira those were the days when about six to ten people would show up to the combine because the NFL didn't want you there. They didn't want you. They wanted the players there, but they didn't want you there. And they would put the players up at the Crown Plaza Hotel. I don't know what it's called now. Maybe it's something else, but the Crown Plaza Hotel. And then they would go into the RCA Dome and, and they would have their workouts and come back to the Crown Plaza Hotel. 
you wouldn't see them, but you'd hope to catch them in the lobby when they were maybe checking in or checking out or they brought them out to speak to you. But they didn't want you there. The NFL didn't want you there. So one year we're there in the lobby with, I guess, I'm going to guess 10 reporters. And, and they were making it clear, we don't want you here. And get the message, get out of here. And we, no, I mean, we're entitled to be here as much as anyone else. Okay. So they removed the furniture, took the <laughs> furniture away. I, I stood up against a post for 12 hours once. My back was killing me. Then they turned the heat off. And I remember the guys <laughs> at the check-in desk, they're wearing coats and, and, and knit hats. And you can see your breath in the lobby. It's like, well, don't you guys get the message? But we stuck it out. We were there a little bit different from what it is today. Let me get the last word in with Ian Glendon over here. Ian, uh, don't listen to anything Clark said because uh, my inside information is that uh, Clark's hangout was the bar at St. Elmo's, <laughs> not the lobby at the, at the Crown Plaza. I, I was going to say I was going to say that oddly sounds like the plot of the Negotiator, starring Samuel <laughs> yeah. L. Jackson. Yeah. Hardly, Ira. I couldn't tolerate the cocktail sauce on the shrimp at the, the St. Elmo's. Ira, do you have uh, any final thoughts here? Well, it's franchise tag time. Uh, yeah. you, your man Ian Glendon is, is worried. Well, what are the Patriots going to do? What are the Bucks going to do? Uh, I'll tell you what I'm worried about, Clark. The uh, incessant drumbeat that I'm hearing, and I'm glad you're sitting down, for the next quarterback for the Tampa Bay Bucks, week one, Blaine Gabbert. Ooh. Blaine Gabbert. I just can't get my mind wrapped around that, Clark. Can you go from Brady to Blaine Gabbert? Can you? Well, if you have to, I guess you, you will. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it as a Tampa Bay fan, but I had a trouble getting my arms around another story, and that's that Calvin Ridley story. That, to me, is a big deal, and it may be a bigger deal than it first appears. He spent, what, uh, Ian, $1,500 on gambling, they say, and then they say, well, there's no evidence that anyone else did anything like that. Really? <laughs> I, 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 this is the league that, that couldn't find anything on Ray Rice until TMZ did. That that looks to me like the tip of an iceberg. I hope I'm wrong. But anyway, I just wonder. And, and, and it's some hypocrisy, too, uh, in terms of the league uh, fully embracing gambling sites. Uh, Clark, yeah. you, you can't have it both ways. You, know, you can't have it both ways. And you can have it both ways with the eye test for two, because R and I, guess what? We're signing off. That's going to do it for this week. But we would like to thank Dick Vermeil. He was great, Ira, for joining us. Mr. Ian Glendon for producing us and you, especially for listening to us. If you want to hear this or any I Test for Two podcast, just go to fullpresscoverage.com. Pull down the podcast. It says I Test for Two. Click on it. And guess what? There we are. Anyway, thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next week.